Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, as we continue along in our series through the Gospel of John. Two years ago, a nativity scene on a courthouse lawn divided an Iowan community. The display was put up November 18th by the city's Chamber of Commerce, but soon after some residents who belonged to the American Atheist Association complained that Christian imagery should not be placed on government property, and so the display was promptly brought down and put in a spot uh, a few blocks south. Some residents called for the nativity scene to be returned to its original location, even getting a petition going, while the atheist group insisted that they would fight it in the courts if the display was put back. Who would have thought that baby Jesus would cause so much controversy in a community? Jesus is a controversial figure. As I mentioned a while back, I think most people like Jesus in a superficial sense, but once they discover what the Bible actually says about the man and his ministry and his message, most are turned off from anything that has to do with him, even a harmless nativity. It's usually his claim to being the Son of God who uniquely reveals the truth of God and is the only way to God that causes the most heated debate and hardened disbelief. How can anyone believe such nonsense that a a first century Jewish carpenter was God? That his backwards, narrow-minded, pre-scientific teaching was actually the word of God? And that only by believing in him can anyone have eternal life with God? Give me a break. The Christ of Christianity is more myth than fact. The Bible is just another fallible book of man. And the teaching of Jesus and his apostles is non-historical, intolerant, antiquated drivel. If you've ever attended a public university or worked alongside of an antagonistic atheist or had conversations with anti-Christian relatives, friends, or neighbors, you've most likely heard this sort of scoffing and, and skeptical sentiment before. Jesus is a controversial figure, and he always has been. Just as we've seen in the past two chapters of the Gospel of John, when the religious leaders began to persecute Jesus and planned to kill him in chapter 6, and then the crowd stopped following him when they were offended by his teaching in chapter 6. Well, now, in chapter 7, the controversy over Jesus continues, only to an even greater degree. As we watch it unfold in the story, as disbelief and division and debate steadily increase, as the religious leaders continue scheming and the people grumble and, and Jesus' own brothers doubt him, as his claims of divinity and his offer of eternal life is, yes, received by many, yet rejected by most, as the controversy over Christ is cranked up higher and higher and higher in our text. I believe John records it and frames it in such a way to show us, to show the reader how to respond. What should we do with this Jesus who incites so much disbelief, debate, and division? 
What, what should we do with this controversial Christ? Who nevertheless, in the midst of all the controversy, continues to offer us the gift of life. Well, let's now turn to our text and find out. To this story that opens, you guessed it, with first of all, controversy just before the Feast of Booths. Verse 1, after this, after the events of chapter 6, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So right away, John establishes this controversial context. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So six months had passed from the crowds turning back from Jesus at the end of chapter 6. Right? That took place at Passover in April, while the events of our chapter, chapter 7, take place at the Feast of Booths, was, which was in October. And this is one of the three major Jewish festivals, which every Jewish male over 12 was required to attend. It was first instituted in Leviticus 23, 33 to 43, when the people of Israel were instructed to make small booths or shelters made of tree branches and then to dwell in them for seven days in order to remember God's faithfulness when they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, it was just before, in the middle of, and at the end of this feast that chapter 7 takes place which Jesus' brothers thought was the perfect place to make a public appearance. Verse 3, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, from a, a worldly and purely pragmatic perspective, this seemed to be a pretty good plan. Go to the biggest festival of the year, show off your power, and win back the crowds. Sounds good, right? Well, not to Jesus. For one thing, this plan, he knew, was motivated by unbelief. So, verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. Isn't that incredible? They'd spent their whole life with Jesus, watching their, their older half-brother like no one else has ever lived, live like no one else has ever lived, uh, without sin. Imagine that. Your brother never disobeying your parents, never whining about what's for dinner, never popping off in anger against you, but always righteous. And now his brothers, they'd also heard his incomparable message he preached and seen the incredible miracles he performed, yet they still did not believe. It's a dramatic demonstration of just how far the controversy over Jesus goes. Even his own family didn't know what to make of him during his earthly ministry, which reminds us of what we read right at the beginning in the prologue in chapter 1, verse 11, where it says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, this indicates that their proposal for Jesus to go up to Jerusalem with them and to the feast, and, and to show everyone who he is by performing wondrous works and miracles, it was really a dare. 
They wanted their brother to not only prove to the crowds that he was who he says he is, but to prove it to them. If you're really the Messiah, show yourself to the world and really show yourself to us. Prove it. Maybe we've heard the same sentiment before ourselves. Skeptics today daring believers to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, demanding the Bible to answer all of their objections. Well, Jesus would have none of it. For one thing, he'd already done many signs, as we've seen throughout the gospel account so far, proving again and again that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. If they really wanted hard and fast evidence, there was plenty to go around. But that wasn't the real motivation of their rejection. No, it went much deeper for them and for all of those who rejected Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So this is the truth. This is the, the real reason why his brothers rejected him and others too, and why the world hated Jesus. Simply put, while intellectual objections may contribute to the unbelief of the world, the ultimate problem is not intellectual, but moral. It's an inability to humble oneself, to admit one's sin against God, and then to willingly receive the rescue and the remedy of sin he offers in Jesus. I reject Jesus because in the light of his word, there is nowhere for my sin to hide. My moral wretchedness is fully on display. And so I want to be as far away from him as I can. If skeptics were honest, that's what they would say. It's ultimately a moral issue. By their unrighteousness, they repressed the truth, Paul said in Romans 1.18. And that's really the heart of the whole controversy over Jesus. Everything that follows, the disputes and the dangers, which is finally why he would not go to Jerusalem yet. So verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And then verse 8, he says again, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. Now, it's interesting in the marginal notes of your Bibles, probably it says there that when, when Jesus says, I'm not going up to the feast, some manuscripts say, I'm not yet going up to the feast, because he will, and, and that might be better, but we're not clear. Nevertheless, again, what is clear is that unlike his brothers who could safely go to Jerusalem without any cause of concern, Jesus was aware of the dangerous conflict and confrontation he would surely experience there, especially if he made a big public spectacle as they wanted. He might even get himself killed. But just as he told his mother in chapter 2, verse 4, he says twice here to his brothers, my time has not yet come, emphasizing that he was following a divine timetable. And that yes, at some point, he would be killed in Jerusalem. But not yet. One day he would show himself to the world, 
but not in the way they imagined. He would draw the world to himself by dying for the world. Lifted on a cross, as Jesus will say later in chapter 12, verse 32 to 33. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That right there, that is the controversy of controversies surrounding Jesus. How could the Son of God die? And why? Why would he die in the place of his enemies? It makes no sense. It's outrageous. It's scandalous. It's almost blasphemous. God hanging on a tree. God suffering for you and me. God mistreated for all to see. Jesus is a controversial figure. In his ministry and what he did and what he said. And especially at the cross. But there's more. The story goes on to the controversy that now happened in the middle of the Feast of Booths. Verse 10. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So being a good Jew who always faithfully followed the old covenant law, Jesus did end up going to the feast. Only he went incognito. A good thing since some, before he even got there, were out to get him. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, what a contentious context for Jesus to walk into when he finally got to Jerusalem. The religious leaders or just the Jews in John's shorthand were violently scheming. The people were muttering about him, like Israel had done to God in the wilderness, an interesting and ironic turn of events, it being the Feast of Booths, when Israel was remembering the discipline that had happened for their grumbling as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And finally, there was this big debate going on behind closed doors about Jesus' identity, no one going public with their thoughts for fear of the leaders who clearly despised him. Talk about a a tense situation. The whole city was up in arms over him. But things only got worse when Jesus showed up in the temple to teach. Verse 14 says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now, this is the first mention of Jesus teaching in the temple in John's gospel. And as you can imagine, considering what he walked into, It didn't go over well. Though many did end up believing in him, which we'll see later in verse 31, most did not believe. Instead, they debated with Jesus and among themselves. Some scoffed at his teaching, saying things like, you have a demon in verse 20. While others got angry, verse 23, confused, verse 27, and sought to arrest him, verse 28. And why did they respond this way? Well, John records three main reasons. First, he was uneducated. So verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now the religious leaders knew, of course, that Jesus was literate and he'd obviously studied the Old Testament in great depth, but he had not studied in an official rabbinical school. 
In other words, he wasn't accredited by one of their institutions and their instructors. He hadn't gone to the right school and got the right degree with their stamp of approval. So no wonder he doesn't know our, our interpretations of the Old Testament and doesn't follow our traditions. He's, he's one of those self-educated types. And yet we can't deny his impressive teaching. But as Jesus goes on to say, that's not entirely true. He did not educate himself. No, he was educated by the greatest teacher in the greatest school of all time. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now that is quite the claim, which is impossible to verify, right? Well, not so fast. Jesus actually goes on to suggest a way they can check whether God truly is his teacher and whether his teaching is truly from God. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. So simply put, the person who sincerely wants to know God's will and do God's will, who by faith is willing to go wherever the evidence for Jesus Christ takes him or her, John says, Jesus says, they will eventually come to see that he is the Son of God, speaking from God. After all, Jesus had shown himself to be true and trustworthy. Unlike false messiahs, he did not seek his own glory, but rather the glory of the one who had sent him, which of course is what you would expect. But nevertheless, they couldn't see it. Why? Because these religious leaders were more concerned with their own glory than the glory of God and followed their traditions rather than finding God's will. Verse 19, Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answers, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marveled at it. That's a, he's healing on the Sabbath in chapter five. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, from Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge by right judgment. Which they could only do if they took up Jesus' challenge and by faith sought the will of God. John Moser was regarded as one of the most learned and upright judges in Germany, yet he was a strong skeptic of Christianity until one day he decided he would give the Bible a fair reading. And eventually he came to this very challenge in verse 17 that Jesus presented. What? Jesus made the proof so simple, he said. It would be a shame for a heart thirsting after knowledge not to make um, a trail of it. I'll try it. A trial of it, sorry. 
And so he, he kept reading and studying the teachings of Christ with an open mind. And he put them into practice in his daily life. And through this, he became convinced that in fact, the teaching of Jesus was of God. And he came to put his faith in Christ and follow him. If only the religious leaders of Jesus' day had done the same. But they couldn't. Why? Well, because first of all, they were so fixated on the fact that he was uneducated. But that's not all. He was also unimpressive. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? That's ironic. No, but nevertheless. Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So somehow there become this popular idea in Jesus' day that the Messiah, the Christ, the promised Savior King, would be a man of mystery who would suddenly appear from no one knows where. Well, that wasn't true for Jesus. They, the crowds knew where he came from. He was from Nazareth, so he didn't fit the bill. Some of the people, therefore, outright rejected him. He was just too ordinary. How could the guy from back home actually be God from heaven? It's like today when someone says, how could a first century Jewish peasant rabbi be God? Or how can an ordinary book with ordinary languages like the Bible be God's word? Well, Jesus' response to their unbelief is straightforward and rather scathing. They don't know him for who he is because, in fact, they don't know God. Ouch. Verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Similar to what Jesus will later say in chapter 8, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So Jesus told a very religious crowd who are attending a religious feast that you might think you know God, but you don't. And the reason is because you do not recognize me as being the one sent from God. Now that is one sure way to infuriate people. I mean, imagine if someone came here, came up on stage and said to all of us, by the way, you don't actually know God at all. You think you do, but you don't. Or maybe a better illustration, imagine if someone did that very thing at an ISIS mosque somewhere. It would not go over well at all. And neither did it go over well in the temple. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet, Many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than, his ma than this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to 
arrest him. What a scene. Crowds pressing in on Jesus, trying to arrest him. Somehow he escapes. So the chief priests and Pharisees send a temple guard to go do their dirty work. Yet in the midst of it all, a bunch of people listening believe in him, believe that he's the Christ. Amazing. And a strong hint of where this controversy is ultimately finally going to end. Yet there's one more reason John gives for the widespread rejection of Jesus, and that's that he was unintelligible to them. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? We will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Jesus is warning here those who reject him that this is their opportunity to receive him. The God-appointed moment to believe that he is the Messiah they had been waiting for. And if they miss this chance, he says they will soon find themselves seeking but unable to find him. Now, sadly, they completely missed the point. And this is a regular theme of John, isn't it? When Jesus makes statements like this, so often individuals and crowds don't get at all what he's saying. What he is talking about is his ascension when he returns to heaven and to the Father after his death and resurrection. But they were thinking that he was talking about some coming missions trip to the Greek-speaking Jews across the Roman Empire. They just could not grasp who he is, what he's up to, and what he was talking about. The controversy continued. Which takes us finally to the controversy at the end of the Feast of Booths. Everything in the story thus far was, was building up to this, this final climactic scene in verses 37 to 52. The Apostle John has set it up, so by the time the readers get to this point, to the final day of the feast, we are eagerly anticipating what is going to come next. Will this, this ticking time bomb of controversy, controversy finally go off and, and blow up Jerusalem? Will Jesus' enemies finally get their way, arrest him, and have him killed by an angry mob? Or will Jesus shut down all these controversies and disputes about him once and for all by, by performing another sign and preaching another sermon that settles the debate for good? Do you feel the tension? Can, can you sense the suspense? Everything's been built up by John so far for us to wonder how is this going to end? Well, throughout the seven days of celebration, at the Feast of Booths, Jewish history records that each day the high priest would take water in a golden container from the Pool of Siloam and then would lead this, this joyful procession to the temple courts during which the people recited various Old Testament prophecies that spoke of the coming glory days of Messiah. Like Isaiah 12.3, With joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. Or Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Or Zechariah 14, 8 to 9, on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem and the Lord will be king over the, the earth. 
The high priest would then pour out the water beside the brazen altar to the Lord, symbolizing how God had provided water to physically sustain Israel in the wilderness and how he will one day spiritually satisfy God's people in the coming messianic age when he will graciously pour out his spirit upon them and cleanse them from all their sin. Everyone present would then, as he was pouring out this water symbolically, shout out three times, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. It was the grand climax of the most joyful feast in Judah. As the Jewish Mishnah stated, he that never has seen the joy of the water drying has never in his life seen joy. And it was right in the midst of this climactic, joyful celebration of what's to come. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, that Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? It's remarkable. He's cutting through all the controversy with a call to conversion, a call to come to him in faith. Listen, all of the debates and division over Jesus that filled the, the first days of the feast. It was one great big distraction that was keeping the crowds from truly considering what he was offering them and continues to offer you and me today eternal life. Remember, that is what Jesus has been preaching all along. For example, chapter 3. Chapter 3, as he's speaking to Nicodemus, he says in verse 14 to 16, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then he preached the same thing to the woman at the well in chapter 4, 13 to 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then in chapter 5, verse 24, as he's speaking to the religious leaders, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then finally, to, the, to these great crowds in chapter 6, he says this in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Well, now, right at the high point of the feast, he preaches the same message again. Only this time, with all of the, the symbolism of the celebration and the, the water ceremonies accompanying it, the spiritual force of this message of life is clearer and more convincing than ever before. It's like he's saying, can't you see it? I am the fulfillment of everything you've been celebrating this week. I am Messiah. 
And I am here to offer you the living water that this ceremony anticipates. Incredible. And the way John again sets it up with, with controversy building and then climaxing in this way, I think the implication for the reader, for you and me, the intended response is just as clear. Don't let the controversy over Jesus keep you from coming to Jesus for life. Yes, there was and always will be intense debate, division, and disbelief about Jesus. And it might be difficult to wade through it all, but Jesus nevertheless invites us, every one of us, to believe in him and receive from him what we need more than anything else, life. Once we have that life, once we've been born again and filled with the Spirit, the living water, then we can deal with the controversy with the Spirit's help. But only then. D.L. Moody was once approached by a man who, was, who, who confidently avowed, if you will answer this list of questions, I will become a Christian. Moody replied, if you will become a Christian tonight, then come to me in the morning, and I will answer every one of your questions on the list. That night, the man trusted in Christ as his Savior. And the next day, he came back saying, Mr. Moody, I will not have to put you to trouble to answer the questions. They have all been answered in the night, and now the way is clear. The man thought his greatest need was answers to all of his objections, a way of satisfying him in the midst of controversy, when in fact, his greatest need was spiritual life, which was always there for the taking by faith in Christ. So how about you? Have you taken that first step of faith in Jesus? Have you received the living water from him despite all of the controversy? Or do you continue to reject him like so many foolishly did as the story ends? Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. What a sad way for the story to end. Yes, some believed he really is the prophet in Christ, the promised Messiah, whom the celebration and ceremonies of the feast all were anticipating, and, and they received life. 
But despite all of his powerful words and wonders, the great signs and sermons of his ministry, everything thus far that definitively pointed to and proved his divinity, there was still unbelief. And the controversy just kept on going, even though it did not have a leg to stand on. Some were saying, he's not from the offspring of David and doesn't come from Bethlehem, when in fact he was. They could have easily discovered it by just going and asking his brothers, who would have said, no, actually, we are from uh, that lineage of David, and he was born in Bethlehem, though he lives now in Nazareth. They thought they were so smart, but in reality, they were totally ignorant about him. But worse were the religious leaders, who in one final act of magnificent irony, cursed out those in the crowd who believed in Jesus for being ignorant of the law. When in fact, as Nicodemus points out in the final verses, it was they who were ignorant of the law. Not even giving Jesus a fair hearing as the old covenant law required, Deuteronomy 19. Incredibly, they didn't even realize how many Old Testament prophets had come from Galilee. Jonah, Hosea, others. The final objection they had about Jesus of Nazareth. Which shows how groundless their objection and hard-hearted rejection of him was. All of this controversy that they stoked was utterly unwarranted. And because of it, they came to miss this incredible message and offer of life Jesus was giving them. Which reminds us once more of the response that John is commending to and in the midst of the controversy that continues today. Don't let the controversy over Jesus keep you from coming to Jesus for life. But rather, keep reading the gospel account with an open heart and an open mind. And you will see more signs and hear more sermons that verify his claims. So that if it's your will to know the truth, you will come to believe that he is the Son of God and receive his gift of eternal life. That's what the Gospel of John, again, is written for As he states at the end in John 20, verse 31, we've seen before, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I pray that you will receive that offer of life today, despite all of the controversy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that is my prayer right now. That this incredible offer that Jesus gave in the midst of this feast with all of the anticipation and all the symbolism around it in this powerful way, that it would come to us just as powerfully so that if we have not yet believed and received the gift of life, we would do so today. And if we have, we would be more grateful for it than ever before and confident that Jesus is who he says he is and he can give us what he offers, this gift of life, and that we would enjoy it in its fullness despite all the current controversy around him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.